one of the events that I think is very weird, and if you ever watch it, you'll see why it's weird, is race walking. <laughs> Anybody see the race walking? It was actually in 2016, the race walking. Um, the rules are part of your foot always has to be on the ground so that you're never running. And have you ever watched somebody walk as fast as they can? It's the most awkward-looking event to watch them like, it's just weird. There's other ones that they don't do anymore. There used to be a swimming obstacle course, a 200-meter race through the water, but you had to climb over boats, swim under boats, climb up a pole while you're doing your 200 meters. There's also, and this one is not there anymore either, and just, you can listen to this, there's solo synchronized swimming. Everybody hear the irony in that? Now, apparently, they are synchronized with the music, not with other people. But that one also is no longer there. Um, but there's just there's some strange events. There are things that didn't quite make it. There are things about it that you're like, that's just weird. There's one thing that I saw. So our family, well, I should say my wife and I, we really like watching swimming. Uh, we love the gymnastics. We love diving. We like watching swimming. There's something very exciting about those races for us. And there's one part of that that I think is also just kind of strange. And it's, did you know there's a lifeguard? Just think about that for a minute. There's a guy sitting over in the corner whose role is to rescue the Olympic diver, the Olympic swimmers. I mean, could you just imagine what this guy is? He sits over in his chair and he's like, hey, Michael, I got you if something goes wrong. Don't worry. I'm coming in. You know, Ledecky walks out and he says, I know you can dog paddle faster than I can swim, but something goes wrong. I have my flotation device and I'm coming in to rescue you. I mean, I saw this poor guy and I thought, what a, here's the best part about that the view. I mean, talk about a good seat in the house. Like, and you're not paying for it. Like, you get to sit and watch right there poolside. I was looking at this poor guy, and I was thinking all of these thoughts, and then I thought to myself, self, sometimes my Christian life feels like that. Sometimes I feel like the lifeguard who is taking care of the Olympic swimmers. Like, what is my role in this whole thing? Like, I come here, and hopefully, I at least, at a minimum, get a good show. Like, I get some good music, I laugh a little bit, I see people I care about, I have a little fun, but what am I supposed to be doing? I mean, number one, there's God doing a lot of things, and I'm not really sure what my place is in that, because he's going to do it so much better than I am. And number two... It seems to me there's more qualified people to be doing some things. And I just wonder, like, is my role to sit with my flotation device knowing I'm never going to use it, but at least enjoy the show? Or is there something bigger? Is there something more, like that all of us are called to as believers? Is there something to Christianity that says, you and you and you and you and you and you, you have an actual significant 
role in what is happening in this whole enterprise. That's what I want to talk about this morning. You have a role. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in a very famous passage, Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. It's just after the gospel reading. Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. If you need a Bible, you are welcome to raise a hand and somebody will grab one for you. We have a bunch back there if you'd like one and you don't have one with you. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now I want to paint the scene for you. The sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. Standing on one side, you can see the other side. And, and quite a bit of the shoreline, there's a lot of rockiness. There are areas where it comes all the way down and it's grass. And there could be sheep that are not too far from the actual Lake of Galilee that are grazing. There's a few areas that are kind of beach-like, but not, these aren't, you know, your beautiful sandy, nice beaches that you want to go build sandcastles in. And, and Jesus is walking along the shore of this sea. Now, in the gospel reading, there's some things he's been doing before this. He's been wandering around Galilee. This isn't like his first encounter. But he's wandering along the sea, and there are some guys, and likely, based on this description, they're actually not even in their boats, the first group. There are people that could, you could wade into the water, you could take a net, and you could fish from the shore. And you could still see pictures of this, of people doing this. So here's these guys, and they are casting these nets. And Jesus is walking by, and he says this to them. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. That is a radical call. Much more radical than it may look on the surface. He did not say to them, hey, guys, could you take a break? I'm going to have a Bible study over here, and we're going to gather in a little group, and I'm going to teach you something. He said, I want to change your vocation. When he said, I want to make you fishers of men, you could imagine if they're thinking too literally, they would go, huh? You don't fish for men. That would be weird. You know, taking our nets and like casting them over Richard here. Come on, Richard, I'm capturing you. Um, he's using the language, but not in a sense of like there's a direct correlation. I mean, he could, they could have been mechanics. And he could have said, I'm going to make you fixers of people. There's a number of things that could have been. Here's the point, though. Here's what I can tell you about those two men. It is most likely that their parents were fishermen, their grandparents were fishermen, their great-grandparents were fishermen, their kids are probably going to be fishermen. Like, this is, their, this is the entirety of their lives. Like, everything centers around this. They think and they organize themselves around when is the best time to catch fish. Everything is centered around 
cleaning nets and catching fish and selling this fish. And, and this is, it's all this. And, and suddenly Jesus goes, wait, I want you to make a radical change in your entire agenda for your life. Again, he doesn't say, hey, let's just get together and study a little bit. Or I'm forming a small group over here that every other week I'd like you to gather with some other people and talk about some stuff that I'm going to share with you. I want you to drop your nets, and I want you to come with me. And I want you to become something different. I want you to change your entire agenda. Hey, there's another call in Scripture that is similar to this. Genesis chapter 12 when Yahweh says to Abraham, I want you to leave your family, your land, your business, what you expected to take over. Abraham, I know you probably have been thinking to yourself for quite a while now, I hate this part of my dad's shop, and when I take this thing over, I'm going to fix it. Like, I'm going to change this up, and we're going to expand into this market over here. I got all these dreams about it, and Yahweh comes along and says, I want you to leave the entire thing and go to a land you've never seen before. I have an entirely different agenda for your life. That's what this is. Dreams, hopes, plans, future, past, how it all comes together. I want you to go with me. Now, it's such a radical call that scholars have tried to come up with multiple ways of explaining the response, okay? Look at this. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he's now got guys behind him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. These guys are actually in their boat probably on the shore, but they're in their boat. They're mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee. Kind of, let's up it a little bit. Right, the first two guys at least appear to be by themselves. And so when they leave, they don't have to look at dad and go, good luck. Fix the, you guys finish, you finish the nets. We're, we're out of here. But these guys too leave their father in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. They walk away. They walk away. Look at the immediacy of this. I mean, there's no like, well, let's stop and think about this for a while. Let's, why don't you drop a contract and let me know exactly what's going to be happening and what I'm giving up and what I'm going to gain from it and let me, let me think through it. I have a harder time deciding whether I want chicken or beef fajitas. I mean, chicken? Well, that's good. Beef? I don't know. Ah, ah. I mean, I could spend 20 minutes debating this. And then the guy says, do you want refried beans or borracho? And I'm like, oh, I've got to start over. These guys just, like, like, you know that drop the mic? They just drop the nets. And they start following Jesus. What in the world is going on? Okay, and here are the explanations. I'm going to give you two explanations. They're kind of on a spectrum. Okay, on one side... You have the very supernatural explanation for this, which is, he is the divine son of God who said, come, 
And they were simply compelled and they went. Can't resist that voice. On the other side, you have the very natural explanation. And that is if you go into John's gospel, you will see that there's some interaction with Jesus beforehand. And maybe there was even more and they had some discussion. And and this can't possibly be as radical as it seems. Because it just doesn't make sense that that would happen. I want to make an argument throughout the rest of this that we are missing something that will explain not only why they would make such a radical response, but also why you and I should make that same response. That it's not just that, and it's not just that. There's something in the text that is being ignored. So what is it? What are these guys doing? We're going to back up a little bit into the gospel reading. We're going to go backwards on this whole thing. So we're going to go to verse 15 instead of verse 14. Verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I want to talk about those two words for a moment. Repent and believe. Here's what you're getting in the picture of these men who are in their boats or they're throwing their nets and Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. Their actions are a visual demonstration of repent and believe. There's a reason they're tied right there in Mark's gospel. Okay, Jesus has been going around Galilee. He's been going to villages. He's been preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. These guys are repenting and they're believing. All right, so what does that mean? All right, the word repent, at its core, it means to turn. To turn. All right, it is not, first and foremost, I am sorry or I feel guilty because I did something wrong. It can include those things, but it's to turn. Now, most often, what do we associate repentance with? Sin, right? Most often, we're thinking of repenting from sin, and that is very, very valid. But I want to challenge all of us in that area. I have a suspicion that we, and I include myself, so if this doesn't include you, please don't be offended and just look at everybody else, okay? I have the suspicion that we in general do not take our sin seriously enough. And so we do not take our confession seriously enough. And we do not take our forgiveness seriously enough. In fact, I ran across this prayer. Um, There was a guy back in the early 60s, and he wrote a satirical book where he redid um, a bunch of prayers and, and I want to read you because we pray this prayer, right? but we don't pray it like this, but it is based off the prayer that we pray for confession. And, and here's what I want you to hear. I think that for many of us, when we are praying that prayer of confession, this is what we actually mean. Let me just read it to you. Benevolent and easygoing Father, We have occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We have lived under the deprivations of heredity, 
and the disadvantages of environment. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We have done the best we could in the circumstances, and we have been careful not to ignore the common standards of decency. And we are glad to think that, thou, that we are fairly normal. Do thou, O Lord, deal lightly with our infrequent lapses. Be thy own sweet self with those who admit they're not perfect, according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from thee. And grant us as indulgent parent that we may hereafter continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. Sometimes I wonder if that's not what we actually mean when we're praying that confession. Because our limited view of the infinite holiness of our God doesn't sink in. And we don't recognize that our sinfulness, it goes throughout everything that we do. Our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our motivations. And that we stand before a holy God and we confess, we repent. What we are doing is we are acknowledging that we are in the wrong and seeking to turn away from that wrong and align ourselves with this holy God. That's repentance. It's not, I'm sorry and I feel bad, and I hope that doesn't happen again. It's, I was wrong because I was not aligned with you, and I want to turn and align my life with you. But that carries the idea through. The idea is to turn and align. That's what these fishermen are doing. These fishermen are turning from something. There was an agenda, a path, a course for their lives. And they are turning from that course. And that's where the second thing comes in. Belief. Belief is not especially Hebrew thinking. Belief is not the intellectual acknowledgement of a truth. It is taking something that you believe to be true that compels action. And even in the acting of it, you see its truth. As you live it, the truth is present. It is something far more than just saying, oh yeah, that's true. Right, think of it like this. Hey, we just had a bunch of rain. It's been amazing. This is like the best August I think I've ever had in Texas. I mean, I, last night we're sitting outside on our patio. Like, I don't remember the last August 20th, I could sit outside and actually go, this feels good. But all this amazing rain, right? Here's the difference. Imagine you look out today and it's a clear sky and somebody goes, oh, it's going to rain very soon. And you go, well, I mean, it is Texas. Yeah, I guess it could rain. And then you kind of walk away and you don't really think much more about it. You acknowledge it. You recognize that that could be true. Probably is true. Here's the difference. It's when you are standing underneath that totally gray sky with all those dark clouds, you hear the thunder, and there's a little tiny bit of drops that come, and all of a sudden you go, this is it. I can feel it in my bones. The heavens are getting ready to open up. 
and the water is just going to flood out because it's Texas, and you run for safety. That is belief. It compels you to action. It is so real, so authentic, so true. That's what you see in them. Hey, repentance is the acknowledgement that the wrong direction, belief is what you turn to. Belief is the course you start going on. That is what they are doing. Hey, they were going on a particular course and Jesus is walking and he goes, come, follow me. And they go, we're repenting by turning from this and we are believing by turning to you. And we're gonna follow. Repent and believe. While there are some, I told you I was gonna talk about the Olympics every sermon, right? said that just for the next few weeks. While there are a lot of bizarre things, there's also been a ton of amazing stories coming out of these Olympics. Just beautiful acts of people doing things for one another. Amazing races where you're like, wow, they did it, and they're so excited and celebrating together. And This past week, the 5,000 women's meter run. If you saw anything on this, about 3,000 meters into it, Nikki Hamblin trips. Now, they're all in a pack still, and so the people behind her, some are jumping out of the way, and, and one girl, Abby D'Arestino, trips over her and hits the ground. In that moment, and you can find this on Twitter, you can see the video, it's the only place I found it. She lifts her head up, and there's a split moment and then she turns and goes back to Nikki Hamblin and says to her, get up. This is the Olympics. You have to finish this. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. That girl has spent, most likely, the majority of her life training for this. Her entire life has been about this. You can also go find videos about how much it costs to get to the Olympics and they'll go through all the training you have to send your kids through to get to that point. So the time, the effort, the money, the vision, everything. For the last four years, you imagine how hard she has been training for this moment. And these are the semifinals. Like this is to get to that final thing you've been working for. All your life has been centered on. Like schooling, everything takes second place to the Olympics. And even her coach that she said later in an interview... Her coach told her, if you ever fall, get up, take a quick look around, and then catch that pack. Because that's what it's about. What she did in that moment is repentance and belief. She turned from a course of action that she has been fighting for, for probably as long as she can remember, for something else, helping another person, knowing they would not qualify. She gave up her chance at the Olympic gold to go help somebody else. And this girl, Diagostino, she's a believer. Here is her quote. Although my actions were instinctual at that moment, the only way I can and have rationalized it is that God prepared my heart to respond that way. This whole time here, 
He's made it clear to me that my experience in Rio was going to be about more than my race performance. And as soon as Nikki got up, I knew that was it. Talk about a way of viewing your life. That, that's what he called these fishermen to. I want you to turn from all of this thing that you think is your life, and I want you to take a different path, a different course, because of what I am calling you to. And that leads me to the last thing. Repent and believe is what they did. It still doesn't answer the question, why? Why did they make that radical shift? Why did they turn from this whole idea of their vocation and their future and everything else to this? Look back at your text. And go to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, So there's your summary. The gospel of God, that's the summary. Here's what he was saying. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to make an argument that we can make a radical shift in our lives in what would look like a very impulsive manner because it's so quick if the content of what we are called to is big enough, grand enough, wonderful enough. See, the issue for most people reading this text is not that these guys might eventually follow Jesus. The issue is how do you have somebody who has their whole life ahead of them suddenly go, drop the net, and here I go. Dad, I'm just going to leave you in the boat. I'm not even going to walk home with you. I'm just leaving you in the boat. I'm going. How does that so quickly thing happen? If the content of what you are turning to is great enough, you can make a massive shift in your life. Here's an example, and then we'll talk about the content. Here's this bib here. It says, skip the green beans onto the, and it says pudding. My wife crossed out pudding and put meat. This was a gift from my wife because I am a slob. Kidding. So it's not for me, but it could be. I really am a slob. This was a gift, uh, I guess, about 11, 11 and a half years ago. I came home, and my wife had a little wrapped thing for me. And I opened it up, and I pulled this out. And my wife told me, we're having a baby. And it changed me in that moment. I began to think about my future differently. I began to think about what things were going to look like. I thought about my job differently. I thought about my wife differently. I thought about everything differently. A kid is coming into our lives. It was so big that I was willing in that moment, if my wife had said, and the only way we can have this kid is if we move to Colorado. That was your chance, hon. 
I'd have said, let's go. Let's do it right now. I'd have dropped the net, walked out of the boat, and boom, would have done it. Do you know what I was doing last night on the patio in that wonderful weather? Something I never, ever foresaw doing in my life. I never dreamed about it. I never thought about it. I never pictured myself. I was getting nail polish off my daughter's fingers. I'm out there with nail polish remover. I'm scrubbing nail polish off. Because the whole direction and agenda of my life changed in that moment. Because the content of the announcement was that big. That big. So what's his? Because I want to argue that it's so big that there is a reason they stepped out of the boat. There's a reason they dropped their nets and they walked off the shore and then spent the next three years following this guy around Palestine. The content of his message was that big and still is today. What is it? Hey, look back at the text. I think we, uh, Western Christianity, Frisco Christianity, Evangelical Christianity, um, I, I just, there's all kinds of, I don't want to say everybody's like this, but there's a whole group of us that are like this, and you may fall into it. You may think by reading this that the content is the gospel. Because what's the gospel? The gospel is, just tell me if this is what you would say, I am a sinner, I have missed the mark, but Christ died for me, and if I will accept him as my personal Lord and Savior, I will go to heaven. Now that's a whole lot of content in that word gospel. And here's the problem. I guarantee you, I have no doubt about this, and I don't think there's a scholar out there worth anything that would disagree. There is no way that anybody in first century Palestine heard that. When they were saying gospel, when he said repent and believe in the gospel, they were not hearing this. Trust in Jesus as your personal savior because he died for your sins and you'll go to heaven. They weren't hearing that. In fact, if that's what it was, they really didn't need to leave. They could have just stayed there and believed. That, that is what I think quite a bit of Christendom is. We're standing still because we're believing that. And it's done, right? What more is there to do? But that wasn't the content. In fact, that right there makes us miss something really key in here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's nothing about the kingdom of God in any of that. But that's what he's preaching. Let me tell you what gospel meant, but I want to do it this way. All right, you all know what the word backlog means, right? Because it's what our lives are, especially the summer. Like you have your kids home all the time and it's really backlogged. I mean, you have so much that you have to get to. And it's like you look behind you and it's just piling up. How do I ever get this? But the original meaning of backlog was that. It was the backlog in the fireplace that kept the rest burning. And so if I were to say to you, there's a backlog on my desk, and you thought, oh, I bet there's a whole bunch of work, and you walk in, and my desk is on fire? That's a very different thing, right? Or how about this? Because we all suffer from this. 
deadline. Everybody has deadlines, right? And you hate them. They just sneak up on you and boom. And that's deadline is when something is due. But that's not the original deadline. The original deadline was a line drawn around a prison camp that if you crossed over the line, you were shot dead. Once again, if you're walking with a friend and you said, our deadline is getting close, and they're thinking one thing, and you mean something else, and they step over it, that's going to be bad. Gospel means good news. Now, over time, does it take on a broader meaning? Are there a lot of connotations to that good news? Yes. But we need to go back to what they were hearing. We need to hear what they heard. Now, let me reread it. This is how I think it's heard, and then I'm going to read you how I think they heard it. I think it's heard this way. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming that God was going to save people and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and you'll go to heaven. I think that's what people hear when this is read. I want to read it differently and I want you to hear it. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Do you see the switch? Let me tell you why it's so big for them. Very, very, very short history lesson. Really short. But without it, you won't get this. In 538 B.C., the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and they sacked it. Destroyed the temple and they carried the Israelites into exile. And since that time, because when that temple was destroyed, the glory of God left. And from that time until right now, every generation of Jew was praying the same thing. Yahweh, return. Bring your kingdom. Bring us out of exile. Establish your rule. Let your kingdom come. Yahweh, come back. Every generation was praying it. They would teach their kids, and their kids would teach their kids. And now you have this moment where Jesus has been walking around Galilee saying, guys, everything you've been praying about, everything your parents were praying about, everything your grandparents have been praying about, everything you've been waiting for, I know that you've been suffering under this rule of somebody else, that even though Herod rebuilt the temple, you're still praying for God to come because you're under slavery still. And I know you've been wanting this. And he's walking around saying, the kingdom is here. And so when he walks up to these men, and he says, the time is fulfilled. The time is here in your generation. You guys are the ones. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And these guys go, what else is there? I mean, honestly, 
What else is there? Why would I even want this net anymore? The kingdom of God is here. I am all over this. And they go. And everything else is secondary. They step into a kingdom first life where their agendas for their lives, their way of seeing things and evaluating things, the authority for them, the things they dream about and think about, all begin to filter through a kingdom first life. Because if the kingdom is here, what matters more than that? What could possibly go in front of that? And so these guys step out of their boat, they step away from their nets, and they begin to follow into a kingdom-first life. That guy sitting on the side of a pool, holding his flotation device, he actually does have a role. Oh, it's not much of a role during the actual events. I mean, there's like a hundred amazing swimmers all around that thing and coaches, and if somebody goes down, uh, somebody's going to get in that pool. But there's a point where the swimmers are practicing, and not as many people are there, not as many swimmers are there, and there's not as many coaches, and there's not many people like actually watching a particular person. And, and that's a point where one of these guys said, we're watching. Like, we have a role. You know, they, one of these guys even joked about the fact that, like, yeah, I'm just waiting for the moment that, and, and again, they, he used Phelps. I'm just waiting for the moment that Phelps is like, I need you. you know, I'm just, just waiting for that, uh, knowing it's never going to come. But there is, there is a role when you understand where they fit. When you understand that, like, no, I mean, yes, I'm sitting here during the whole event, but, but mainly my role is actually a different point. And if I understand that, I have a place here. There's meaning for this. You, every one of us, we have an actual role in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that God is actively spreading. We have a role. And it begins with one thing. A kingdom first life. For the next nine months, I want to talk about the kingdom of God. I want to teach on it. I want to help us understand it better. Um, I want us to understand what God was doing through his people, in his people. I want us to understand why God was doing it. What was he doing and why was he working in these people? What was he trying to accomplish? Because he has bigger plans for us. He has plans for our families. He has plans for our community. He has plans for you to actually be significant in his kingdom. Not just turning inward and studying scripture more and more. Not that that's not important. But turning outward to serve your family 
and your coworkers and your neighborhood and the community, people who are hurting. Like we have this awesome role in God's kingdom. And I want you to stick this phrase in your head. A kingdom first life. That we as a church become a kingdom first church. That we see ourselves as stepping out of that boat and following. With our agendas, with our dreams, with our authorities, with everything that would guide us, kingdom first. But I don't want to just leave it there. I want to explore, I want to help educate, I want to show what it looks like. I want to, as a church, walk through this and not just have it as this kind of big idea in the sky. Kingdom first, isn't that awesome? It's way up there. Because here's what you need to know. Just hear this. The kingdom of God is here. And it is spreading through God's people, through the work of the Spirit in the lives of the people around us. And we get the privilege of being a part of that. Will you join me in doing that? A kingdom first life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for far too long in my own life, kingdom of God has been nothing more than a phrase. It's been something that I said very generically that meant something like you being in charge or it meant something about the future when you would reign completely over all things. Or, but I've never truly grasped what you're doing right now with your kingdom. Lord, I'm asking you to take us on a journey to help us better understand your kingdom. Not just as an intellectual exercise, but as something that comes into our lives, into our families, into where we work, into every aspect of who we are that we might be kingdom-first people. Sharing the love and the grace and the power of Jesus Christ, our King. And so, Lord, we give this to you, and we ask you to take it and do far more with it than we could ever do on our own as we submit our lives to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.